The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. There is a time for There is a time. For answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. Have we got a great show for you tonight, folks? Stick around. First of all, though, I want to mention, go get the coffee, go get the tea, get a beverage of your choice going, get on your comfy couch, get on your comfy chair, get the comforter up, because we're going to go to places we haven't traveled to for quite some time. John Moore is our guest tonight. Now, this is going to give you a very detailed idea of where we're going to go tonight. Here's his title, folks. Are you ready for this? He's the director of Demonic Investigation for Haunted North America Network. He also runs an organization called Ottawa Paranormal Research and Investigation. He's been investigating since 1995 various paranormal activities in and around his life. How many people do you know that grew up inside a family funeral home? John did, and that's where he had his very first paranormal experience. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for having me, Brent. Glad to be here. It's good to see you, my friend. Okay, growing up in a family-run funeral home? What the yes, heck is uh, that about? What happened there, <laughs> well, buddy? Well, my great-grandfather actually started the funeral home, built it from the ground up, and ran it for years till my grandfather and my father took over. Uh, we lost the funeral home years ago, but that's another story. But uh, during my time there, Basically, uh, I would at night my dad would be cleaning and I'd be hanging out. You know, I was about twelve, maybe a little younger than that at the time, but I'd be hanging out. Uh, my first experience in the funeral home was when I was eight years old, and basically at that time I was standing in the foyer while my dad was back in the chapel just cleaning up. Uh, I can't remember what it might have been some flower petals or something from the wake that night, and basically while I was waiting, I saw a gentleman at the bottom of the stairs. And down in that area is where basically we'd have like a little makeshift uh, morgue. My dad and my grandfather would build the, the pine caskets and some of our sh our showroom for the uh, ornamental caskets was there. And there was just this man standing there who smiled at me and then just walked and walked to the side. And my dad came out and he was wondering who I had been talking to because I had said hi when I first saw this man. You know, I'm eight years old, don't know any better, right? 
<laughs> so my father, uh, he went down to see who was there because there wasn't supposed to be anyone there. We were all locked up for the night. He came up saying there was nobody there. Turns out, in the years since then, uh, many other people have seen him, including other members of the family and people that knew my uh, my great-grandfather built the funeral home, and he's the one that they've seen. Now, I had no idea who he was. I hadn't met him until, uh, well, I had never met him. He died when I was about three months old. Wow. Now, you got to tell me, can you tell me how old was he and how was he dressed? Well, uh, his age, I'd probably say in about his 60s, somewhere in that range. And he was just basically wearing a regular suit with a, with a hat, kind of like, you know, pretty much like an undertaker would wear back in those days. I guess in the building where it was, it was that's what he would have worn whenever he went to work and all. So. Oh, so you think he was an undertaker then? Oh, he was an undertaker. Like my great-grandfather is the one that I saw. And he was the one who built the funeral home. Wow. I saw his I saw his wow. picture in a family photo album a few years later and I pointed and said that's the guy in the basement at the, the funeral home and that's when they told me that was my great grandfather. Son of a gun. So that's pretty wild. And what did mm -hmm. your dad say when you told them that and your grandfather? They had been around that funeral home just uh, probably much longer than I uh, I was, as you can imagine. So it honestly didn't surprise them. Things happened in there all the time. Like there like was what? all kinds of can you give us some examples? Things would move. There were noises. Uh, a lot of tap, like you get a lot of tapping sounds. If you were there at night alone, you'd hear footsteps all through the place. Uh, frequently, things would be picked up and put in some other location. Just various things like that. You just sound so nonchalant about it all. What was it like <laughs> growing up in it? You know, you've got death around you 24/7. Did you sleep in the same? building as the uh, the coffins as where the caskets and the bodies were laid out uh no the bill we weren't living in the actual funeral home itself i um, see we were yeah we, we were actually just sharing the parking lot we were right beside it so uh but yeah it was like i'd look out my bedroom window and there it was so it wasn't like we were far <laughs> wow but no yeah but no uh it's just i grew up in it like i said and so did everybody else in my family so to us it was just regular everyday thing it's just part of part of life what did the kids at school say when you told them stories like this well most of them would just laugh or some of them would say you know they talk about their imaginary friend things like that wow that's pretty uh, incredible stuff and was that the one incident in your life that decided to make you thrust yourself into your work as a paranormal investigator and director of demonic investigation for haunted North America? Uh, it definitely pushed me in the direction of the paranormal. Uh, okay. That wasn't the, that wasn't the biggest one that got me involved. What was the biggest like, one I, got you involved? Uh, the biggest one was after my uncle died, we were living in another house. Uh, and basically that house was known to be uh, haunted. It was a small town I grew up in, maybe 2,000 people on a good day. And in that house, basically almost 3,000 had seen this, this ghost. Uh, there are stories of one individual who was actually attacked by it. But, yep, oh, yes, he was attacked. He was uh, just, the old man would sit on the end of his bed and, like, whack at his feet and things in the night, you know. For a 10-year-old boy, it was kind of frightening. But no he kidding. was, uh, uh, well, his, his mother and father were, 
one was native, one was uh, non-native. And the old man, he uh, he was from an older time, so he had some prejudices towards that type of thing. So I guess that's why he didn't take to him. Because I never had anything like that happen to me. Although I did see him a few times. The worst is when I woke up one night, I was on the couch, and I saw him in the window. And at that point, I was about 15 years old, and I basically just stood up and said, hey, who the, who the heck are you? What are you doing in my house? And he just turned, looked at me, and just vanished before my eyes. And at that point, that was when I just basically said, okay, there's been enough strange things happening to me over the years. It's time to get him more involved into this. So that's what you did. And what, what was your first step in getting involved? Uh, well, basically, I started reading up on it online. I read uh, papers by, uh, by Lloyd Orbach, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, a few, other, a few of the other notable parapsychologists and things like that from back in the 80s, 90s. So that was how I basically got started into it. And from there, I would take some of what I picked up on from that. I bought a couple of record, video recorders and cameras and, you know, the, the voice recorders, things like that. And I'd be out at night in the uh, in the cemetery sometimes take, doing sessions. I mean, everybody starts there eventually when you're young, right? I'm laughing so, because, you know, John, you say, again, so nonchalant. I was just out in the cemetery hanging around <laughs> looking for ghosts. We're speaking with John Moore, folks. You're listening to Night Fright. I'm your host, www.nightfrightshow.com. You'll be able to pick up all of John's links there, uh, including... Uh, his Ottawa Paranormal Research and Investigation information, as well as, as I said before, he's Director of Demonic Investigation for Haunted North America Network. So 1995 till now, mm-hmm. you know, the industry's exploded. And uh, what has changed since 1995 until now? Oh, so much. There's so many new technologies out that people are using now, like, Back, back when I first started, the biggest thing was, you know, you had to buy, like, your camera, then you take it, you get it developed, you had the rolls of film, things like that. Now everything's digital, so you, there's so many differences there. The video, the audio recorder is the same. Video recorders are much more easier to, to handle instead of having the big, you know, remember the big bulky units from the 80s, 90s? They were just massive. Nobody really, you didn't really have too many because they were expensive, and nobody had anything night vision, obviously. So the night vision, the full spectrum, all these things that we're seeing now, we didn't have access to back then. Yeah. Okay. How is the attitude towards paranormal researching? How has that changed? You see it a lot more. People are open to it now as opposed to what it was before. Before, people would kind of look at you like, oh, you're one of those crazy people and things like that. But nowadays, people look at it like, oh, wow, you do that like on TV? So... People are generally a little more accepting for the most part. Okay. Did you? Uh, what kind of background do you have as a paranormal researcher? Did you go to any schools besides the School of Hard Knocks? Uh, <laughs> you grew up in Canada? Yeah, I grew up in Canada. I've never actually done any formal schooling or anything like that. But as I said, I've studied a lot on books and things like that. And I've spoken with a lot of people who are well-known. Like uh, I do... From time to time, I do converse with Lloyd Orbach on various topics just to get his input and things like that. Like, uh, I know I have a course coming up I'm going to be teaching here in Ottawa later in January. Uh, January 18th, I believe, is the exact date. And uh, I was speaking with Mr. Orbach, and he's given me a few things that I'll be bringing into that course that people can actually see too. So, You want to talk a little bit more about that course? 
Well, at the moment, we're still putting it together. It's going to be me and uh, another individual. She runs a number of things through there, mostly occult things, uh, re reading runes, astrology, things like that. But this is going to be the, a ghost hunting 101. And a lot of what we're going to do is we're going to go in, we're going to tell, we're going to explain people the theories behind what we do. We're going to teach them, you know, what, what are we doing with all these meters and gadgets we have? What are we looking for when we're taking pictures? Why do we use different types of camera settings and things like that? And I'll also be showing them, you know, some of the things to watch for that are easy ways to debunk what you're seeing. Okay, let's take up your latest paranormal research adventure. What happened recently? Oh, the most recent one, I'm pretty sure you're probably talking about the Witch's Hollow. Yep, yeah. Witch's Hollow. Let's go there. <laughs> let's tell the folks the all about that. The Witch's Hollow is actually quite interesting. It's a, it's a property outside of Ottawa. Uh, I can say that much. I can't really give away the exact location for obvious reasons. Uh, but it's in the middle of Lanark County, and it's there's no contamination anywhere. There's actually no cell reception, nothing. So there's no there's no one nearby. It's inside of an area where there's a lot of wolves and things. We actually heard them howling that night. And uh, apparently it was very weird to the owners because they've never heard anything like it. We all thought it was very beautiful. But uh, while we were there, we were we finished setting up our cameras. And we were all outside getting ready to do our protection. And we heard a very loud, audible moan. Like, it was actually so loud that everybody in the, everybody in the group actually turned and stared to the direction where it came from, which was in between two of my investigators. And the two of them looked at each other thinking the other had done it. So it was actually, that was pretty good. And that was, like I said, when we were just, we had just set up the equipment. Nothing was rolling yet, obviously, right? always happens that way and we got that uh, later in the night we had a few we had a few things our sensitives went into some rooms and they just they had to leave they were absolutely scared uh, there's a room in there called the altar room it was set up with pagan pagan altars and all because the building was used at one point uh, by for pagan rituals and things so there was a lot of things that happened like that and they know there was one one person in there who was extremely bad extremely evil and he was doing a lot of dark dark rituals and things in this place so they believe he was still there so while we were there a few of our people picked up on his energy and what he was possibly doing in those areas but again my my sensitives when they went in had no knowledge of this the only one who did was me okay so to see them to see them confirm that was actually quite crazy okay but then let's... there's more oh sorry go ahead i just gonna ask you can we talk about what you knew going in and what they didn't know and how they both okay. matched up together and what do you okay. do for protection, by the way? Before we go in, uh, as a group, we always get together. No matter what, no matter what you're doing, what you believe, you always want everybody together. It's just a show of solidarity. So sensitives will come together. They'll do their uh, their grounding, centering, the energy work that comes with being a, being a sensitive or a psychic or an energy worker. They'll do that, and they'll do that with us and protect all of us with it. And at the same time, I'll generally me or uh, if Bishop. Angelicus is with us. He's the uh, the exorcist we work with. If he's with us, he'll actually read the prayer of St. Michael, or I will. And that's just a way to show solidarity, show that, you know what, we are one, we are a team, you're not going to come between us, and we're strong, there's strength in numbers. So that's generally what we do when we're doing uh, our protections before a case. So. Okay, and what did you find out in your research about this character that you came across, if you will, and what did the paranormal uh, sensitives find out and how did you guys come together 
Hey, well, uh, what we have on the place is from the from the owner, who's uh, she's she's my occult specialist. Okay. She does know her. She does know a lot about these things, and she basically gave us the history of it. Some of it you can check out. They're uh, the previous owners for thirty five years. They were leaders or members. I'm not one hundred percent on that. Of a uh, the largest covenstead in Canada. So yes, they were witches. So there in the back was the place where there's a major pagan festival that to this day still goes on, but it, it's moved. It's grown so large that it no longer can be done at this location, but this is where it started. So uh, there's that. In the back, they also have a place called the Barn Temple. There were rituals done there. There were rituals done on other areas of the property. So there was all kinds of things like that that we found out. Um, again, some of this, like I said, is things that she came up with herself and let me know about because uh, she's the one who's into these things, and in the remote area like that, it's almost impossible to get any records to corroborate most of this. What were some of the things she came up with? Uh, one of the things that she got while talking to the owners was, like I said, that she also spoke about a man who was in there. He was the uh, the dark one, the dark uh, sorcerer, whatever name they have for what he was doing. I'm not sure on that because nobody really knew exactly what his uh, his occult uh, following was if you get my drift there and basically he did uh, the way it was explained to me was that for lack of any better idea it's something that even my specialist had never heard of called a psychic baby nobody knows nobody seems to know exactly what that is but it's something that he was saying is what happened and it was something very dark and evil and in that room where that was supposedly done Everyone, even even the non-sensitives like myself walked in and we felt just something like we shouldn't be in that room. So he was uh, he was definitely, we believe he was there. The sensitive when he walked in, just he just turned around and went back and go, there's a very angry man in there. He's not nice. We need to back up and stay back from him. So When, when you say sensitive, can you describe exactly what a sensitive is as opposed to, because you just said you're not a sensitive. What are, what are uh, the differences between the two of you guys? Well, I have no psychic. Most people would think of them as psychics. Oh, so I see. I, just, I, don't, I don't use the term psychic because a psychic would be someone who sees the future. And okay. psychic, you know, we all know, you know, psychics generally are frauds. Or in the realm of what I do, when there's people that have, uh, can see the future like that that accurately, that's generally a sign we look for. So that's not a, that's for me, that's not a good thing. So most of our people, they're sensitive. They're sensitive to the energies around them. Uh, they can often see or hear the spirits, things like that. Really? Wow. Yeah. So they have kind of a connection with the other side already as they walk through the door? Would that yep. be accurate? Okay. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Okay. You see some of them on TV, like uh, Michelle Boulanger, uh, Derek Acora, people like that on TV. They call them psychics there, but that's not the actual definition of a psychic. Okay. And you as a non-psychic, you have to use your, I guess, instruments, your electronic instruments when you do a, a research or something along those lines? Is that the difference? Yep. I'm mostly using the instruments and I'm picking up on those. Although, to some degree, everybody has sensitivities. It's just I can't hear and see them where the other people that I work with, they do. So I'll go into a room and every once in a while, like I've been doing this long enough. It's like, I, I say this, like, I'm not a fan of the TV shows. So I find they're all for entertainment, but some of the things that they've come up with, uh, one of them that Zach Baggins of ghost adventures says the most is 
the best investigative tool he has is his body. And that's absolutely true. Because when you're in a room, even if you're not sensitive, if you've been doing this long enough, you get that, you just get that feeling like something's not right, like something's there. Everybody has that ability and everybody can feel those things. It's just some people are more in tune to it than others. So when you run across something evil, something dark, how do you mm-hmm. differentiate between what would be demonic and just a ghost that's just out of sorts, if you will, that's just causing havoc? Well, generally with demonic cases, there's certain patterns that they follow, certain things that we look for with them that you won't see in other cases. Uh, some of the biggest ones are, we all know there's those cold spots that appear in some cases, right? With a demonic entity, you're more likely to see hot spots. Like you may see cold spots, but there will be hot spots in places. When you walk into certain rooms, instead of feeling like watched and, you know, unwelcome, you'll actually feel like a heavy, heavy oppression on the back, like something is trying to push you down, doesn't want you there. Uh, Those are some of the smaller things we look for. There's also the bigger ones, like, you know, people levitating, things like that. Those are generally ones that you watch for. But, again, those are extreme. Have you seen somebody levitate? I have seen it once. Oh, can you tell us about that? Uh, I can, all I can say on, I don't like to speak too much on those demonic cases because the people that are involved there are at their worst and they see they're, they're basically at the mercy of these things. And I don't like to put them in that place, but what we did see is we did see her just off the ground slightly and it was almost, and you could see a red mark on the neck. It looked like something was choking the person. It was absolutely insane. Like it, it was bit of an eye opener for all of us at that point. Wow. That is scary. But again, those those types of cases, they're so, so rare that it's once in a lifetime you'll come across it. And to anyone that thinks that they'd love to see it, no, you don't. I can assure you. No, no. <laughs> I'm not convinced that would actually like to even see a ghost. Um, <laughs> you're based in the Ottawa area. How far out of a radius do you go on cases? I go wherever I'm able, honestly. Uh, I'm from New Brunswick, so last summer we actually, my wife and I took a drive out and uh, we did a few cases out in New Brunswick. Hmm. And we're hoping to get back out and do a few more this uh, this spring, maybe in the fall, we're not 100% yet when I can get the time off is all. But uh, we'll go there. Um, if the case is warranted and it's necessary, we'll travel to Toronto up to four hours, five hours, wow. wherever we need to go, as long as it's warranted and it's worth us going. I mean, if somebody calls and says, you know, I can't find my cat or I think I've got a ghost because I'm hearing knocking in my walls, mm-hmm. but they're in Niagara Falls. It's like eight hours away. I'm not going to, I'm obviously not going to make that kind of a trip, but I have a network of people all over through haunted North America and through all the years that I've been doing this, that I know people in pretty well everywhere. Like recently, uh, recently I just helped a guy with a case that was being done in England. So, can you tell us a little bit about Haunted North America? How many uh, members of, are on your team that come from Haunted North America? I know it's quite a big Facebook group. <laughs> it's a very large Facebook group, and on the team we don't actually have an investigative team per se with them. It's more of a global network of all paranormal investigators but we're trying we basically stick mostly to haunted to north america obviously because it's haunted north america but we're trying to bring all the people that are interested in this together into one place so that everyone can just be like one stop there you go if you want to find out about a paranormal tv show it's there if you want to talk to somebody experienced it's there 
If you want to know where to buy and sell used equipment or new equipment, we'll have that on there. It's just going to be all kinds of things like that. Okay. And, you know, I'm just wondering, um, do you reach out to them? Like, let's say somebody calls you from Calgary, which is way too far for you to travel to. Would you yeah. reach out to a team members or group members that are in Calgary to go and take a look at whatever information came through across your desk? Yes, absolutely. I actually dealt with one in Edmonton not too long ago. Wow. People, what happens when people contact me from out in other areas like that? Generally, I get those contacts through the Haunted North America Facebook page. Okay. And generally what happens from there is I'll talk to the person and I'll find, I'll get their story from them. Just Got to you. find out. There's certain things, like I'll be asking them certain questions, like, you know, just to make sure this isn't someone who's out just wanting attention, wanting their five minutes of fame, something like that, right? So I'll be asking them some questions, trying to find out the background, what's going on, getting an idea of, getting an idea of just formulating what I think it might be. And then I'll reach out to a team in, in that area that I believe is capable of taking care of the situation. And all through that, the team will contact the, the person, they'll get back to me and I'll just keep an eye on the whole mm -hmm. thing as it goes, just to make sure. So. What are the goals of the team? Of Haunted North America? Well, of, of your team, your investigation, people that are into this that you contact, what are the goals? Is the goals, are the goals to document uh, and let people know what's going on in their homes? Is the goal to uh, clear the surroundings, if you will, so people aren't haunted and bothered by the ghosts? Does it Generally, differ from case to case? It, it does a little bit. Uh, if you're doing like a known location like Waverly Hills or something like that, right? You're going and you're trying to document and catch things. You're, you're investigating what's going on, trying to test new techniques and things like that, correct? Okay. And, What's uh, Waverly Hills? <laughs> it's a it's a very famous haunted location in the U.S. It was at one point it was a mental hospital. I see. Uh, yeah, like there's all kinds of those. There's Waverly Hills, Rolling uh, Rolling Hills. There's all kinds of different places like that that you see all you see them on all the TV shows. Like Ghost Hunters have done them, uh, Ghost Adventures, all Paranormal State, all those shows like that. They go to these locations. So if you're going to a location like that, you're obviously not there trying to remove anything. You're there because you want to try and catch something. You want to see, document it. You want to see if you can catch proof. But when we get a private residence call, yeah, it's a little different. What you're doing then is somebody's reaching out to you because there's something wrong and you're trying to get in there and you're trying to help them. At the same time as you're trying to help them, you are trying to catch what's going on and see. Like You want to verify what's, what they're seeing. You want to try and capture it. And then you want to see if you can figure out what's causing it and what you can do to help them so that they feel more comfortable in their house. Gotcha. Okay. And do you charge for these services, by the way, John? No. I don't charge for anything I do. Really? No. So if somebody's got a problem, they can just contact you through Facebook and off you go? Is that the idea? Yep. They can contact me through Facebook, through my website, wherever, and I'll, I'll do what I can to help them. We're speaking with John Moore tonight. He's director of Demonic Investigation for Haunted North America Network. And uh, he's also running Ottawa Paranormal Research and Investigation, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest's uh, contact information, and uh, you'll be able to contact John if you have anything you would like to ask him, or perhaps you have a problem going on in your own home right now. John... You get something that flies across your desk. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, okay, it's somebody in a secluded area uh, living in the bush, 
and they've got these weird things happening. Plates are flying around, things are moving by themselves. What I'd like you to do is walk us through your process, um, how you would uh, take on a case like that and prove to the person that's called you what exactly is going on. What would be your first step? Well, the first step is I would make contact with the person and I would speak to them on the phone. I have a questionnaire I go through and uh, we would go through that and just get the answers to the questions so we can see and rule out is this something like is it a poltergeist activity? Is this somebody that's just overreacting because there's an earthquake or something like that at the time? You know, we're, we're in Canada, we have the magnet, the, uh, the great Canadian shield below us. There's a lot of seismic activity at times. Yeah. Often we won't feel, often we won't even feel it. But it is enough that some things can fall off walls and things. So I would just try to verify that and see exactly, like, is it actually flying across the room or is it just falling off a shelf? You know, I would go through things like that to find out. And if they told me, you know, no, it's literally like flying 10 feet across the wall and hitting, smashing on the opposite side of the room, then we'd be looking a little bit more like, okay, into the individual. Like, is there any sort of t stress patterns? Is there any any big life events that have happened? Things like that, trying to rule out possible poltergeist activity. What's a poltergeist? Poltergeist is actually, it's just pent up energy. Uh, parapsychologists would call it PK, which is a uh, photo. Uh, it's okay. I can't Photokinetic or something along those lines? <laughs> yeah, uh, photokinetic, I believe something along those lines. The name, the actual word escapes me at the moment, but they call it PK. And so, what it is, is that energy is in all of us. And that's what, when we get something we can't handle, our subconscious may act out without us knowing. And that's basically what a poltergeist is. It's something that comes out, we've manifested it, and it basically is destructive force. And it, it'll things will fly. You'll see people throwing things. People have been attacked and choked and things like that at times. Mm -hmm. So, um, What are some of the questions on your questionnaire, John? Uh, some of them, basically, I'd be asking them... Uh, has anyone had any medical issues that you know about? Uh, are there any any pets in the play, in the uh, location? What do you know about the location? Uh, has anyone in your family died recently, or do you know anyone who has died recently? Uh, I'd be asking that. I'd be asking, has anyone in your family had issues with drug abuse, anything like that? Uh, there's a lot of questions like that that we just that we ask them. There, some of them seem a little bit personal, mm. but they're all there for a reason. Okay, let's pick one. And uh, okay, you'd mentioned has somebody died recently. Mm -hmm. Why would that be important? Because a lot of times you you and we've all heard the stories about someone they've gotten a phone call from their grandmother who's on her deathbed and she talks. And then about ten after they hang up with her, but maybe after ten five ten minutes whatever, they get a call from the hospital saying this person died an hour beforehand. You know that's a one-time event that happens, and often family members will appear like that. Sometimes they'll be like through the phone. I've heard times where somebody would see, uh, they woke up and saw their uncle or their grandfather or like my, uh, my great grandfather. You know, you'll see them sometimes. That's why did somebody recently die? So we asked that to see, is this a one-time occurrence? Maybe they just dropped in to say goodbye. Does that happen quite a bit, John? It happens, it happens more often than you think. I mean, yeah. The problem is though, we can't document those because they're a one-time event. Oh, I see. I see. So yeah, it's often just, they're it, at one time. So okay. yeah, it's very like you're either there at that moment, which you would have no reason to be there investigating. But I'm thinking chances happened. are if somebody's contacted you, this is a recurring theme. 
that's going on in their house. And it may even be escalating. Sometimes, yeah. A lot of the cases I see, they do tend to be escalation. Because uh, I have other teams that know me and they know what I do. So when they have a case that gets really bad, they actually refer it to me because they know we deal in those extreme activity cases more than, say, someone who does it just for fun on the side. Right. right. Now, at what point do you start doing research on the area, uh, the house, the ground around it? Like you had mentioned, uh, the, the recent one that you just did that you found out that there was the largest covenant of witches that used to use the back as a ceremonial ground mm -hmm. well basically as soon as i have the address i'll give it to my research team and they'll go out and they'll start digging so they'll just start digging they'll see what they can find they'll see not what they physically can get out, digging get out of it. <laughs> no, not physically digging although there are some that i think if i told them to they probably would they probably they would. Would how, how many guys on your team by the way uh my team we're probably i think at about this i think right now we're about 14 all total. Wow. That's my that's my investigators, my reviewers, my researchers. Right. That's all of my my clergy, uh, my specialists. That's everybody. Okay, and everybody's a volunteer for this. Nobody gets any. Every, everybody's a volunteer, absolutely. So you obviously have a day gig. What do you do for your day gig? I'm an automotive mechanic. Okay, so you do have a source of income then. Okay, because I imagine yeah. this gets expensive, right? I mean, you have to buy your gear yourself. There's gas money. There's feeding people. Uh, to say nothing of your time. Well, thankfully, all of my team are good about the, the feeding people. They take care, they take care of that themselves. Oh, excuse me, sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> no, they uh, they take care of their own expenses. All my people know that. Like your expenses are yours. The only things that uh, I take care of is I'll generally take care of uh, the transportation, gas uh, for myself, for my vehicle, and anybody with me. Uh, I bought all the equipment is owned by me, the team. Wow. So I take care of all that expense. Um, most of the other things, like I said, most people pay their own pay their own expenses, but like the equipment, travel, things like that, it's generally the ones that I take care of. Is it expensive, the equipment? Can yeah, you give us an it can example? be. Can you give us a rundown <laughs> of some of the equipment you use and what it's oh, used we, for? Uh, okay, yeah, sure. We have, uh, oh, we have a lot, but uh, the biggest ones we have, I can start with our cameras. I have an eight-channel Vonic DVR system. Wow. So it's a security system, basically, that we take, we uh, mount it. I have tripods for all the cameras. Obviously, I have eight big ones. I have uh, two small ones just in case we don't have room to put a big one. We put it on a windowsill or something like that. It's got all the little tripods it came with. So we've got all the equipment for that, the extra wires we had to buy for it. Uh, it came with the cameras in the unit, thankfully. Uh, after that, we have the full-spectrum camera. I have, right now, I believe I have three night vision cameras. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I have three. One Sony, one JVC, and we just acquired, a, the team has just acquired a Samsung. It's one of my investigators that owns it, but we're going to be uh, getting it out on a few cases here soon. Uh, after that, we have, uh, we have my wife's Canon DSLR, uh, a Kodak Coolpix, just a little $50 Walmart, you know, digital camera. We use those. Uh, and for people that think, you know, you need the DSLR, no. The, the Kodak one works just as well as the big big units there. So the cost of a camera doesn't make a difference when it comes to that. Okay. Uh, after that, we've got multiple EVP recorders. I'd say I probably have five now. Looking to get more, obviously, because you never have too many recorders. What's the uh, difference between capturing something on an actual EVP recorder as opposed to capturing audio on 
a handy cam or something along those lines? Not really much, honestly. Okay. <laughs> It'll come through the same. You'll still hear it faintly underneath everything, and if you look at the wave pattern, you'll it'll still show up. Uh, it'll still show up in there sometimes. But you need to, with the audio, with the video, at least you can see that it's nobody in the room that's doing the talking as it happens, right? So you have that to, to validate it. Now, do you ever pick up apparitions on the camera? Uh, well, video evidence is incredibly rare. So is that it's, right, it's, huh? Oh, very rare. Like, you, if you see it maybe once every 10, 15 years. Like, wow. in, the time I've been, in the time I've been doing it, video evidence that I've captured, maybe four or five. And even then, a couple of those, a couple of those were orbs, but we had someone reacting to it at the same time. My, my initial reaction when I see that it's an orb, junk, throw it, get rid of it. There's too many natural causes for it. It's not worth my time. I'd rather have nothing than put up something that is easily or possibly not paranormal. We Although see a the, lot of orbs. There's a lot of orbs being posted these days on the paranormal groups and things along that nature. Um, yeah. What is the most natural cause for an orb? Because there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of people capturing orbs. When they first started being so uh, so prolific, I, people were saying it's because we have digital technology. Is that not the case anymore? That does play a part in it. That does play one part in it, uh, the digital technology. Sony put out a statement. Uh, I know Alex would be the one to speak with on that. I know the NPS has it up on their site, the statement by Sony explaining how these orbs appear in the photo with the digital technology. But the most common case I've even run across, and it wasn't on digitals, it was uh, even on the, the film cameras, you know. If you were to buy a disposable, the little film cameras you have to take in and get it developed in a darkroom and all. If you're to use them, you can still catch orbs with that. And generally, what the biggest thing that you're getting is a reflection. And the most common cause for it inside a house is dust. Ah, that makes sense. Okay. So dust I've particles people, in the I've air had people tell, reflects off them. Yep. And, and I've had people tell me before, I'm sure you've heard this too, well, well mine's green or it's red or it's blue, it's colored. You know, so it's got to be a ghost, right? Sure, you've heard that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, those ones there are actually moisture. Oh. We'll okay. see that outside. One it's good like thing that I've actually seen and done with people just to show them this is I'll take a camera outside with a flash, and I'll take a picture out in my backyard when it's snowing or when it's raining. Mm -hmm. And you'll be cutting. There aren't that many ghosts running around in my backyard. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. So when you get all this collection of tapes, audio, and everything else, you have to go through it in real time? That must be really time-consuming. It can be, yeah. yeah. That's why I have a review team that's put together. There's about four of us that end up going over all the evidence together. Uh, it just speeds things up. Yeah, I guess so. And when you come across the same thing happening at the same, the same part of the timeline, that must validate various uh, things that have taken place as well. Like I'm thinking if you catch something on one audio feed and it lines up perfectly with another audio feed, then you can actually say, yeah, there's something happening there. Now, I, from what I've understood, it's very hard for ghosts to actually 
uh, manipulate audio machines and actually try and say something. It takes a lot of their energy. Yet mm -hmm. some are very clear. Um, could you explain why perhaps some are clearer than the other? Like you can actually hear somebody saying something as opposed to just a grunt? Uh, there's many theories on that, but unfortunately there's only one way to find out. And we'd have to basically catch that as an EVP too. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. But okay. the, gen the general theory is that some entities are strong or are stronger than others, and that's possibly one reason. And another thought is that sometimes it's got to do with the people in the room. Some people they might be able to draw from them, or they might be more sensitive to it. So that is something the entity is able to focus, and that's how it can be it can be uh, caught easier. Okay. And do you ever get any warnings? to stay away from property, things along that nature. And I'm not talking about from <laughs> the police or, or neighbors. I'm talking about ghosts that actually inhabit a haunted property. Uh, we do have sometimes, like we've had times where we'll go and you'll walk into a place and you know, as soon as you walk, I'll walk in to do my initial sweep when I uh, first come to the play, come to the location. I'll go through with the homeowner. If it's close enough, I'll do this before the other the rest of the team show up. But when I go in, there's times I'll be there and I'll just, it comes after me. You'll get a heaviness and it'll be, people say like, it's just centered there and it's just a heaviness that follows us around while I'm there. Other times I've heard people say that when they're talking to me or about my team coming, activity is picked up for some reason. It could just be their subconscious. They're seeing things. They're hearing every little crack and settling of a house. But, you know, there is a possibility that, that just them speaking on it is riling them up. Yes, it's possible. You know, how does one become a researcher? Apparently, you know, MUFON, we had uh, the director of MUFON Facebook on, Karen King, several weeks ago. And uh, there's a whole criteria for people to follow to become an investigator for MUFON. Is this something what you're trying to bring forward with the course that you're putting together? Well, the course I'm putting together is not necessarily bringing criteria for it. Because one of the things with what we do is it's so many unknown variables, yeah. so many things that you know, we don't know about any of this. Uh, one of the biggest things is the reason why it'll never, it can, well, it may one day, but the biggest problem is trying to prove the consciousness. This is what parapsychologists have the biggest problem with and why they say at the moment we can't scientifically prove the paranormal because it's a matter of, proving that there's a consciousness. So until we can figure out how to do that, it's always going to remain, remain theory, speculation. Right. Do you ever but work in tandem with MUFON? Uh, no, I haven't. I actually Just haven't curious. had any... Well, I have actually, uh, I've actually never had any cases where it's involved uh, UFOs or anything like that. Although we have heard there have been lights in the sky and things near the hollow, so I might look into that this summer when we go back. That could be quite interesting, Ashley. You know, because I've heard before, too, that... As long as, long as... Go ahead, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. You were going to say something. I was going to say, as long as we can find a MUFON group that's not afraid to sleep on the site of, like, uh, massive occult, satanic, dark witchcraft rituals... <laughs> then you'll be cool with it. Well, I'll get you in touch with Karen <laughs> King. How's that? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> she knows some people in the area. Uh, and Michel Deschamps is a MUFON guy, too. Uh, Michel Deschamps okay. is from uh, Sudbury, actually. He's been on the show several times. You can find him in the archives, www.nightfrightshow, as well as our guest tonight, John Moore, 
All his contact information will be there as well, folks. www.nightfrightshow.com. John, um, you know, you're on the leading edge, the cutting edge of all this stuff all the time. Uh, do the media ever reach out to you as a go-to person? Uh, not really. I've had a few times where people have contacted me saying, you know, I'm from this show. Uh, we'd like to see, you know, we'd like to see you come and talk to us and things like that. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to a couple, but that's about all. You know, I've done a few of these um, internet radio shows like the like your own here that we're sure. doing now. I've done a couple of other ones. But the people from the media, like, you know, come. I did have one guy once say, you know, you know I'd like to have you do a television show, but I honestly don't think he was legit myself. <laughs> Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, just one of those guys. So I think it was a scam myself, but you know. Ah, could be. Could be. Yeah. Getting back to the mornings now. Uh, when do you does your team? At what point when your team hears the warning, they actually take it seriously? Generally, the point when uh, the psychics and everyone else realize, you know, there's something really bad here. Uh, when we start having people scratched, people start getting attacked physically, things like that, then we start to worry. Has that happened to you? To me? Uh, I've been scratched a couple times on cases really? years ago. Years ago, yeah, there were a couple, but some of those, some of the time, though, it's hard to say. Like, you know, you, you, you can catch yourself in the dark on a nail or something like that. It's hard, it's hard to say for sure. Yeah, I was scratched by a ghost. I mean, I'm a mechanic. I get scratched all the time in my job. And I'll just be standing by the, I'll be 10 feet away from the car. Next thing I know, I look down, I'm like, oh, crap. And I feel it then, you know, I've been scratched. But been scratched. You know, it might have happened two minutes ago when I was standing at the car, right? So, you, you know, you don't notice. feel it until you notice it, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Okay, so you get to the point where you're about to enter a home. Do you ask the people inside the home to leave so you can do your investigation? What? How does that all take place? No, I generally, uh, I generally actually prefer to have them there. Why is that? Just, just for the reason that the entities, if if they are actual human entities, it takes them a while to warm up to people. Like, they're just the same as they were in life. You know, people are shy. Ghosts can be shy. You know, these people that have been there for ten years that they are interacting with, maybe it took them five, six years to actually start interacting with them because they were shy and they didn't know them. It took that long. So if they leave, we could be sitting there all night with nothing happening. But if there's a certain individual that sees them the most, that's there the most, that they're always that seems to be like that's the one they focus on, I like to have them in the place with us. And from time to time, we'll actually take them out when we do our rounds of the building. We'll bring them with us out in the uh, in the field to see if we can get anything around them at the same time. So uh, kind of like think... using them as bait. <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. So typically, I would imagine all your investigations take place on a weekend. Yes. So you would show up on a Friday night or a Saturday morning? Whichever time is best for the client. Generally, we'll show up in the uh, the early evening hours after supper. And like how long? Our... Is, how late do you stay? Do you stay overnight and monitor things? As, or? Well, as long as we can and are able to. There are some cases we have stayed overnight. Uh, the Witch's Hollow, we were able to sleep on site. Uh, other cases, yeah. <laughs> Other cases, we've stayed until 3, 4 a.m. Uh, we've had cases where we wrapped at midnight. Now, we stay as long as we can. It's ultimately the family. We don't want What we're doing is we're trying to help them, and we don't want to be an inconvenience to them. Okay. Now, when you say there's injuries involved, do you document, do you take pictures of the injuries as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. Always. You, do, right? you ever thought about making a documentary? I've not really, honestly. No way. How come? No, I've never thought of doing that. It's just I do so I have so much on the go all the time that I've just okay. never put any thought into that. Okay. I mean, I'd be open to the idea, obviously, but I've just never thought put any true thought into it doing it myself. I just I have so much going on with all the cases and consulting with others through haunted North America that I don't have time to oversee something like that. I get you. I get you. Is there any plans for you to return to the Kingston area and do something? Yeah, we do actually plan to return there. Uh, four of my guys, I have a satellite team in the in the uh, Kingston area. So I do have guys down there working and looking at locations for us. We're looking to get down into a few locations down there. What are some of the reports that have come across your desk from Kingston? Just to entice the folks um, that are listening. Well, the best ones for me are Skeleton Park. Uh, that one still gets me. I would love to go down and check that place out because I hear so many things yeah. about that area. Now, I should tell folks, Skeleton Park, for those of you that are not from the Kingston area, is virtually an old graveyard with the headstones removed. The bodies are still there. They've turned it into a park, and every now and then, somebody will find a piece of a bone somewhere. Sorry to interrupt you, John. What, where, what are the other hot spots in Kingston you'd like to check out? Uh, the other one is that walkway. Um, you'll know where I'm talking about, near Shea Piggy. Oh, yes. You have that There's, little walkway in the back. In the, uh, there was the a little murder there. Yeah. Now, picture London, England, folks. With the mist, the whole nine yards, and this little tiny walkway. Uh, where, basically, it was a place for the horses to walk through to a, um, uh, to a shed, if you will. Now, they've, of course, they've renovated everything 200 years later. <laughs> it's a wonderful restaurant. But uh, a young lady was murdered in this little walkway, and of course it's covered and everything, and um, and there's lots and lots of uh, stories of this this young lady being seen there uh, on a constant basis, on a consistent basis, I should say. Yeah. So it's a pretty spooky place, John. Kingston. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. Like those, and my favorite one are the ones that I'm trying to make contact with right now are the three haunted uh, bed and breakfasts you guys have down there. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be really yeah, cool, there's... especially if they feed you in the morning. And I don't mean the ghosts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We're going to have to start to wrap up, folks. I just want to thank John Moore for joining us. Once again, he is Director of Demonic Investigation for Haunted North America Network. He also runs and operates Ottawa Paranormal Research and Investigation, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest's contact information. We'll take you right to his website. He's got a fabulous Facebook page as well, the Haunted North America Network. Something like 10,000 uh, group members. It's phenomenal, folks. you got to check it out, and they post all the time. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland.
from inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza. First-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.